Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're looking at our changing oceans. We've got a couple of speakers from the 6th Annual Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Marine Science Forum in the studio, and we're going to be talking ocean acidification, climate change, and how we can plan into the future. All that and more coming up for your science on a Sunday, right here on Fuzzy Logic. Canberra and welcome to Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio through Canberra and as far as our aerial signal will go or you could be listening online at www.2xxfm.org.au it's a pleasure to have you with us uh, for your science on a Sunday thanks very much to Irish Voice for the hour beforehand but uh, now we're going to slow down the jigs and reels and get into some science my name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to have you with us today uh, joining us, and uh, I've got a full studio, which I haven't had for a little while, so it's fantastic to have so many people in here. And uh, joining me on my left is uh, fuzzy contributor Joe Duggan. Morning, Joe. Hey, Brod, how are you going? Good, mate. Good. It's good to have you in here. And uh, yeah, how's your uh, scientific week been? My scientific week has been uh, nice and interesting. Preparing for something called Science Circus Africa, actually. Science Circus Africa. Now, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but now you've said it. It's fantastic. What are you doing in Africa, Joe? Uh, spending 10 weeks travelling through uh, six countries, teaching kids science. Fantastic. Starting where? From where Starting to where? in uh, Mauritius, finishing in Malawi. Wow. That's going to be an amazing trip. And how much stuff are you taking over there? Like Lots and lots <laughs> and lots of stuff. All rudimentary materials, because it's all about uh, doing science with what you have. Um, but yes, there'll be a Jeep and there'll be a trailer and they'll both be full. Fantastic. That's going to be so amazing. Now, who's that program happening through? That's happening through the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. Um, yeah, they've been very lucky to receive a number of grants to allow them to do it. And it's, uh, I believe, the second year now that it's been running. Amazing, amazing. We'll have to have you on when you get back and you can talk about the science circus in Africa. Sounds brilliant. So yeah. I'm sorry for going slightly off topic. No, no, no. I, I, I did know that's what you've been working on this week, but um, completely uh, forgot. So, no, it's very exciting news and we'll be farewelling you to Africa soon with uh, all the best uh, science wishes on board Thank for you. you. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned at the top of the show today, today we are talking uh, about our changing oceans. Uh, there's a forum coming up at the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre down in Eden next weekend, and uh, we're lucky enough to have a couple of the speakers from this forum in with us today. Now, if you think these speakers are interesting, there's four more uh, down the coast, and uh, they're all going to be contributing to a fantastic weekend on Saturday and Sunday uh, next weekend. Um, and I'll let you know more details about how you can book in uh, for this forum later on in the show. But to start with, we should introduce our guests in the studio. Uh, sitting across from me is uh, Professor Barbara Norman. Now, Barbara is the uh, Foundation Chair of the Urban and uh, Regional Planning in the uh, Faculty of Business, Government and Law at the University of Canberra. Uh, she's also the Director of the Canberra Urban and Regional Futures, or CURF, and Chair of the ACT Climate Change Council. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning how are you going really well thanks fantastic well it's good to have you in here and uh you, it sounds like you're a very busy person oh pretty busy pretty busy <laughs> but that's that's good it's good to have a busy life well, and uh 
And the things that I work on are just uh, incredibly challenging, so that sort of keeps me alive and get up in the morning. Definitely. Well, but I, I, I'm interested in going to Africa. I want to go <laughs> on the That sounds fantastic. does sound pretty good, hey? <laughs> well, you do get to go to the South Coast next weekend, so that's, that's, that's pretty nice too. Yeah, uh, and I am going to South Africa shortly. They've got a National Sustainability Week, so oh, I'll be fantastic. speaking there. So, awesome. So I might see you there. <laughs> could do, could do. Oh, fantastic. And also joining us in the studio, today is uh, Catherine Schmutter. Now, Catherine comes from the uh, Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University. She's a PhD candidate there. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Podrick. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's good to have you in here. And uh, look, just with the phrase PhD candidate, I know you're very busy too. PhDs are crazy times, right? It's a fantastic time. I just love it. I think it's been the most interesting part of my career yeah. <laughs> well that's right because you're you're probably a, um, a late PhD oh, researcher late. <laughs> I, I, I guess to a, um, I'm not saying anything else than that <laughs> but you've got a lot of experience behind you before yeah, you started um, your PhD I spent a, um, my first degree was in marine science and yeah. then later I did a master's of public policy and I spent a lot of my career working in science policy and marine science policy yeah okay so you've been around the the marine world and fish for a long time time. well actually let's take that to to go into your your research at the moment because you've moved into looking at ocean acidification now Um, so what brought you into ocean acidification if if you've been with the marine world for so long so um I I became interested in climate change when uh, helping to set up the Integrated Marine Observing System, which was helping us understand how climate change was and how the currents were changing the ocean, and that was a great increase initiative. And then I realised that climate change was going to affect fisheries and agriculture and things like that, so I moved over to the Department of Agriculture and ended up in fisheries policy and looking again at climate change. And in that role, I got to go to a conference on ocean acidification and I'd been to one three years earlier which suggested that perhaps some of the little plankton in the Antarctic were being affected. Then after three years they had another conference. People went away and looked at a lot of other species and found many of them were likely to be affected and I became quite concerned at that point and suggested perhaps we need some national coordination to find out what was going on. Yeah. Worked with some of the scientists there and we formed a little group and got an input from all around Australia to write a paper on wh- what the research was telling us, a research synthesis paper. Yeah. Fantastic. I think that's great because so often, you know, scientific research goes into lots of different areas and it's hard to work out how people decide to research. And here you've looked at something and gone, well, this isn't good. Yes. This is changing and <laughs> this, this is isn't good. potentially not good at all. Yeah, and so you've gone in to do your research there, which yeah. is, is just fantastic. Well, I, I realised that it wasn't something being taken up by many governments in the world until they tend to take things up after things have gone wrong and uh, this idea of planned adaptation and being able to you know obviously it'd be lovely if we didn't produce co2 and we didn't have this problem but given that we are producing it we might have to start thinking about how we're going to plan our ad- adaptation to the problems yeah. associated with it yeah yeah because you mentioned they're producing a lot of co2 now is that what's causing our acidified oceans yes it's it's a very simple it's not as complex as climate change at all if you add co2 to h2o you get carbonic acid and that's making the oceans more acidic they're 30 percent more acidic than they used to be wow 30 percent is that that's it's got to be big, right? That's big. That's yeah. Big. yeah. And, and by the end of the century, you know, it's going to be enormous. And, you yeah. know, maybe 170, maybe 200% more acidic. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. So they're big changes. And uh, and is that directly correlated to, to human carbon dioxide? Yeah. Or? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Normally the system can absorb CO2 that it produces um, through the normal processes, but we are emitting it at such a rate that it is, it's going into the atmosphere and about 40% of what goes into the atmosphere is being absorbed into the ocean. Okay, okay. And I suppose quite often with climate change we talk about um, natural cycles and that sort of thing. You know, there's a period of warming and a period of cooling. Is Has there been periods in the past where there have been high CO2 levels in the oceans? Um, there have. Um, at the junction between the Permian and the Triassic, there was a period where it was quite high and there were mass extinctions at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but the difference this time is the rate at which it's increasing. It has never increased at this rate before. Right. So in the past, it's been a, a steady thing, and I'm sure there were consequences yeah, of that. Yeah. But right. But, but now it's but the changes far too are fast. far faster than species can adapt to, in a lot of cases. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what sort of hazards are we looking at when we talk about acidified okay. oceans? Well, it's quite complicated, and the hazards of ocean acidification combined with climate change and overfishing and pollution. But when you think about it all, it comes down to four things that are happening. One populations of species are changing so they're either increasing or decreasing um, some of the literature says some are staying the same but really if something stays the same and something else decreases it will increase so everything's changing right. which is lead, then leading on to ecosystem shifts and so there are two, two of the main hazards as far as the biology goes and there are two other hazards one is the dissolution of calcium carbonate so if you add acid to calcium carbonate it dissolves. Right. And, and th- that's, you know, that's the simple experiment at home, isn't it? You put an egg into to vinegar and leave it for a while and then the eggshell being a calcium carbonate-like substance disappears that's right. over time. You're, you're left with a bouncy egg, which is kind of cool. It's a great <laughs> little experiment to try. But if you imagine calcium carbonate in the ocean disappearing like that, calcium carbonate makes up uh, a lot of our... Coral reefs. Co- corals and atolls, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, beach sand... And you see it on land, you have uh, uh, caves, which are just basically old coral reefs where water's poured through and it just eats big holes into them. Wow. Causing caves. Now, this is, this is something that's being newly thought about, and, but in the, it's going to add with the impacts of cyclones and severe storms that climate change is having to actually undermine the reefs themselves and the atolls. And it's such an inevitable thing if the ocean the average ocean gets down to 7.8 pH, it, they will just dissolve. <laughs> right. So what's the, the normal... Oh. No, I was just going to ask, that's an interesting one, isn't it, Cathy? Because at the, at the very start you said a 30% increase in acidity, but the pH scale isn't a linear thing, so it's a hard thing to convey sometimes. It's, yeah. really, it's really hard to explain to people, but I've got a little phrase that I use. So I say 8.3 is what it used to be, 8.2, and that's when we knew, 8.1, it's really begun... When it gets to 8, it's not too late, but 7.9 is not fine, and 7.8, it's way too late. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, We've got... I know, it it varies around the world. So, for example, in New Zealand, it's already down down to Uh, 8.05, so... In Australia, it's about 8.2. Well, the global average is 8.2, and it varies. It's 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 more acidic near the poles and less acidic in the warmer waters. Right, right. So there's that variation. But, yeah, it was it was a, a higher pH before that. Yeah, it used to be 8.3, the 8.3, average. 8.3, yeah. right. 
those changes. And yeah, when you talk about it being on a, a logarithmic scale, those 0.1 changes are, are quite large changes in acid concentration. If you think of the difference between, say, a glass of lemon juice and some, I think it's, um, I think it's a uh, quite severe acid. It's only one point on the pH scale. So you can drink lemon juice and be quite happy. <laughs> if you drink strong <laughs> acid, you, you won't be happy at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's well, quite, yeah so it, it doesn't sound like much and some people think that it's not going to affect things, but actually. And mm. the other thing is the oceans are very stable. And so species aren't used to having to be so resilient to these changes. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before that the, the change in species, and I mean, I can completely understand some disappearing because you know, acids are dangerous. They're dissolving calcium carbonate. They're going to yeah. be dangerous for species. But how are those are they increasing? Are they adapting to this acidification? Well, some, some things love it. Um, uh, sort of the uh, blue-green algae that, that makes slime and those sort of things actually prefers to be in a warmer, more um, carbon dioxide-rich environment. So that is actually encouraged to grow. And some things like jellyfish also, which are often symbiotic relationship with this algae, okay. they can also increase. Yeah. But unfortunately, these are not necessarily the things that we would like to increase. Um, if you get too much algal blooms, that can be quite toxic to the environment. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly something that we hear about in the news is algal blooms, um, more so in our, in our stagnant lakes and, and those sorts of areas, but there have been algal blooms reported in the ocean. In fact, there was a, there was a massive algal bloom down in the, the south coast a, a year or so ago. I know the, the Marine Discovery Centre was posting lots of photos of that and things that were happening down there. Yeah, one, one year in Naruma when they had the oyster festival, they couldn't use any of the local oysters because of algal blooms um, wow. leading to toxicity, potential toxicity yeah. of the oysters and the trouble there is climate change is also increasing the amount of sulfur acid soil that runs into the estuaries and that also increases the acid. Very sensitive. Very sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. As, well, as well as having some uh, you know, issues with toxicity in shellfish there can be some other relatively drastic flow on effects after an algal bloom as well can't there? Yes, yeah. in other parts of the world they've just created dead zones because they make the whole environment anaerobic or no oxygen and, and it can just become barren yeah so um i'm we're very fortunate on the south coast that it is a relatively pristine environment and um so you do need nutrients as well for an algal bloom and um these are the these are the things that are going to change though so it's not all about losing say shellfish or plankton it's also about gaining things that you don't necessarily want yeah that's a good point and around the corner though (coughs) in places like lakes entrance I mean, they've had significant algal blooms. Yeah. And and, and and a lot of money thrown at the problem, but actually, if you look at the evidence, um, not much progress, positively. Uh, so, so an- another uh, problem that you might get down closer to the cities um, that people don't realise is sometimes cities uh, release um, some hev- some metals into the water and that can be fine if they're in compounds um, with copper or lead or those sort of things because they're not available to the marine life. But if you increase the acidity, those those compounds break down and it's called speciation of trace metals and those trace metals become more available too. Can be eaten by the uh, algae, which are then in turn eaten by the oysters, which are then in turn eaten by us and or other species. And so there are all these complicating factors 
But, yeah, the other thing that I haven't mentioned is it actually changes the way sound travels through the water. Okay. Uh, as the acidity changes, the way sound is going through the water changes, and that can affect things like marine communications, whales who are very sensitive to sound, those sort of things. Yeah. Right. right. And, I mean, on a more personal level, I suppose, with the recreational use of the south coast, are we going to see start seeing, um, you know, unsafe swimming areas and those sorts of things popping no, up? No, it's not unsafe to humans. I mean, the, the we swim in rivers and they've got a much lower yeah. pH. It's certainly not going to be hurtful to us. I mean, what might be unsafe is if there are more blue bottles or, if, you know, those sort of things. Um, yeah. What might be unsafe is if the seafood you eat is, is if you go out collecting oysters yourself without knowing whether they're a little bit more toxic or, you know, we, we they're the sort of things. And it, it's really, the south coast is beautiful and pristine. It's really areas like Bangladesh or other areas which are more polluted where they will face greater threats. And right. we actually might have an opportunity, I think, some of the reserves that we have down there to make them reserves for species that can't survive in other places. Yeah. Right, right, very much so. Well, yeah, you talk about creating reserves down there. I mean, uh, there's obviously going to be short-term and long-term solutions. That's uh, right. as, we're, as we're changing the pH, we want to start acting now, but we're going to have to start planning for the future. What are, what are some of those short-term things first that, that we can start looking at? So... Um, some of the short-term things is obviously awareness raising, making people understand what's going on. Um, I have created on the Atlas of Living Australia species list where I'm trying to put synthesis of the research so people can understand what's actually potentially going to happen to different species so they can really know. I mean, there's information available, but it's very general, like mollusks may be harmed, you know, is the sort of thing that you can read on the internet. And it's really not... What I would really like to know if I were a person aquaculturing Sydney rock oysters is that they might be affected by algal blooms, that they might be affected by trace metals, that their fertilisation rate might decrease and their larval development might decrease, and that, say, Angasi oysters, which are native down there, might be more resilient, and that I might then think about maybe the juvenile stages having them in tanks and then reseeding the populations in the wild, which is something which Victoria and New South Wales are starting to do. It's quite interesting. There are a lot of things in Australia people are already doing which would help address ocean acidification. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, the Atlas of Living Australia, that was something we talked about on the last show when I was on here. We had Eddie in talking about her discovery of peacock spiders and and tracking them on on the Atlas of Living Australia and we're encouraging people to log on so they could help uh, log species that they find uh, across the country. But it's not just a resource for logging species. There's there's some um, information to be gained there as well. Yeah, if you look under the species lists. Right and go to ocean acidification you can start to see that I've only got about nine species up there so far but I hope every week to put a new species up and synthesise the research findings yes fantastic so yeah you're looking at um, other people's research at the moment and trying to put that into a a practical context for everyone the first the first part of my research was just understanding the hazards better and that's I spent a year looking at all the science and understanding what was happening and and um, having already done that research synthesis before, that it helped inform that. And now I'm actually just starting to look at... So now that we we know we have those hazards, what sort of systems are they going to impact on people? So is it food security, food safety? Is it fisheries? Is it aquaculture? Is it recreational fisheries? Is it people who live on coral islands? <laughs> you know, um, And I've, I've got about nine different 
things that it will impact on and so then the next phase I do after understanding what, what what systems are exposed is to and you know which ones are more at risk so yes marine communications may be affected but it's not it's a pretty low level risk it's something we could easily adapt to without too much effort but food security that's a high level risk and that's impacted on from climate change from overfishing from pollution and from ocean acidification and that's an area where aquaculture and thinking differently about the way we we do things can really make a difference for example I did a survey at the World Aquaculture Conference and asked people what the most commercial and important species they thought were and I got answers like seagrass, seahorses (laughs) sea cucumbers and these things can be aquaculture in a multi-trophic system with different species all in the same tank or all in the same area and actually things like sea cucumbers make the water less acidic because they actually chew up the the seashells and things on the bottom and release it back into the water and it dissolves and so there are all sorts of exciting things we could be doing in Australia's really well placed to do some of these things well that's interesting so it's all the the species that are all the the background species, I guess you're saying there, with the seagrasses and it's the sea actually cucumbers. Actually, very economic to produce. <laughs> yeah, a seahorse sells for seventy nine dollars. A sea cucumber sells for three hundred dollars a kilo dried. <laughs> and you can aquaculture them in conjunction with oysters at the same place, but unfortunately, the current New South Wales legislation would ask for an extra fee for you to do two species in the same place. We wouldn't do that in agriculture. In agriculture, we'd encourage biodiversity. I don't know why we don't do yeah. that in aquaculture. Uh, could it be considered, considered in a similar way to farming? In the, yes, I'm no it is agric- farming. It is farming, but in the ocean. Yeah, um, in the ocean or in tanks on land and then, then seeding it back into the ocean. Yeah. It is, we should think about it much more like we think about agriculture. We've been doing agriculture a long time. We know about sustainable agriculture and species diversity we we need to think the same way for our aquaculture yeah very interesting indeed well we're talking very much about industry there and i'd love to know some more um community action and community opinion too but we might have a little bit of a break for the moment and come back to that after the break and also um talk to professor barbara norman too then about some of the work that she's done in planning uh, not just for oceanification but for climate change in general and living with that but for now, here's a song. Um, this is Timorese band Lemurai. Uh, no, that's not. It's Timorese band Clamour with their song Lemurai. That was Clamour there with Lemurai, their fantastic song, which is about uh, travel and people being together and just absolutely lovely. And if you're looking for some travel next weekend, why not go down to the South Coast? There's the uh, sixth annual uh, Marine Science Forum being run by the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre. And we're lucky enough to have two of the guests from that forum in with us this morning, Professor Barbara Norman, who's at the University of Canberra, and uh, Catherine Schmutter uh, from the Australian National University at the Fenner School there before the song break we were talking about uh the uh co-farming you had a much more scientific word oh hold on i better turn your microphone on so we can hear you there we go multi 
Multi-trophic. Multi-trophic. Yeah, many different trophic levels. That's yeah. right. But farming a couple of things at the same time, which our, our farmers do on land. But you're talking about doing it in the oceans and yeah. the fact that, um, you know, putting sea cucumbers and seagrass with things like oysters and that, and they're already doing this in China. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing this. They've come up and they, they're much more commercially viable. You have the opportunity to save endangered species. Sea cucumbers are quite endangered. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it just all benefits. So why do you think it's not happening in Australia? Um, I just think uh, we haven't caught up with it. We, we are quite comfortable with the way we grow our oysters. There is legislation in place that would mean you would have to pay extra licence fees to grow <laughs> two species in the same spot. Yeah, and, and that, just, that just doesn't seem right in my book, yeah. to do something more environmentally friendly, more sustainable, and you've got to pay more to do it. Yeah, and people sometimes think of aquaculture as a threat to the environment, and sometimes in the past it has been, but yeah. it wasn't managed well, so that's another... Well, and I suppose we reason. can lear- learn from agricultural experiences there where, you know, farmers have, have learnt over centuries, really, um, how to, how to uh, best tend to the land and, and certainly CSIRO research, a lot of their early research was in farming and agriculture and onto how to make that work and we can take some of those lessons and start applying them to, to aquaculture and doing the research into aquaculture. Well, CSIRO has been very successful in breeding um, prawn food from algae which which means there's actually no cost to the input. You can make these pellets, the algae, just by growing them in the water, feeding them to prawns and they actually grow 10% faster. <laughs> so they're doing that up in Queensland already. Wow. And, and then using the wastewater from the prawns to grow a different type of seaweed which they then sell off to China and Japan. Mm. So we, we do have the elements in place. We need to increase these. We need to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's what I was wondering because all the stuff we're talking about here is very industrial um, uh, level in terms of helping industry deal with ocean acidification and that side of things. Is there anything we can do as, as, as individuals or members of a community to help make this happen? Well, I think there's so much we can do um, as members of the community. Uh, you talked to me uh, in the break about REDMAP and the way people are observing where the different species are going and how they're behaving and that is a really useful thing to do. There's um, just having an awareness of you know, when you're putting things into the water, is it something acidic? Is you know, do we th- need to think differently about legislation for sewage works? Do we need to think differently about you know, redu- reducing pollution um, and reducing floods? When we have floods, they can wash sulfur acids all in. There, there are all these things. There's a wide range, but I think the most important thing for the community to do is start becoming more aware and learning about it and thinking about what adaptation strategies they could do to these changes. Definitely, and, and more information is available places like um, the La- Atlas of Living Australia, of Living as you mentioned Australia, before. Yeah, and um, just, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can, you can look up information, but I think looking up aquaculture and thinking differently about the environment and thinking that we don't, we can't rely on the ocean the way we used to. It's yeah. going to change and what can we do about it? I still have to do the research on how we're going to do that <laughs> but I'll be talking to and running a survey at the at the forum to ask people about their ideas and getting lots of input from those because I know there's a lot of expertise down there amongst the aquaculturalists and the fishermen. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well yeah, if that is something you're interested in, head on down to the uh, uh, down to Eden to the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre for their forum coming up and uh, you can definitely talk about uh, ask some more questions of you I'm sure and and, and have a chat about that Um, but I suppose you're talking about communities and getting them involved that's very much where um, 
your work comes into it, Barbara, because you're looking at um, climate change, but you're you know you're part of the uh, the urban and regional planning groups and looking at the future and and that sort of thing. And um, in your talk down the south coast, we're talking about um, extreme weather events that are happening down there. What sort of um, things are we seeing down there happening to the people on the south coast? Well, certainly on the south coast, it's well. The south coast is not really divorced from some of the larger trends. So I guess that's the first comments that uh, CSIRO have um, outlined in some of their recent work. Uh, so, in terms of the south coast, uh, we expect uh, there'll be uh, continuing uh, temperature increases, uh, increase with uh, extreme fire um, risk. With that, of course and uh, decreased rainfall, continuing sea level rise and with that extreme um, uh, sea uh, events, weather, you know. So, so for the south coast, it's uh, very much about uh, being aware of those risks that are both current and in the future and incorporating those risks into future planning decisions about coastal developments and infrastructure. And... Understanding. I mean, listening to Cathy, I learned a great deal from Cathy. It was fantastic. <laughs> Good. You know, we're going to set up a sea cucumber farm and, <laughs> and um, with oysters, as we've discussed. But uh, but it's all connected, and I think that's the important thing. And so often my discussions with the local communities, coastal communities, is those connections between the catchment and the land, the coastal environment and the marine environment and thinking of that catchment to coast to marine continuum and in the context of climate change looking at all the risks and and how we can start to adapt our decision making processes at the local level to to uh to plan for those changes yeah. uh, things events on the south coast well clearly coastal inundations one of the biggest risks and places are already subject to flooding. Naruma would be a good example. Oh, so that's, that's a, the, the flooding from the oceans that's into, right, the, into, into the land. The land environment. Yeah. Batemans Bay, there's, uh, as you drive across the, the bridge into Batemans Bay on the left, it looks like a nice, beautiful uh, marine environment, but in fact there's a land subdivision that goes into that, that, uh, into that um, uh, coastal area, into the ocean. And so... Uh, it's a great diagram that uh, that coast has al- already receded. Oh, wow. And what sort of quite time frame is that? Well, that, that subdivision from? was what, what we call an old and inappropriate subdivision <laughs> from many years ago, often by the British. No offence to the British, who uh, who uh, did these paper subdivisions. And so that would be like 100 years ago. Uh, so... Um, so we've already got that happening on the other side of Batemans Bay, just to give practical examples, uh, that, uh, that uh, coastal, the, the walk along in front of the sh- shops there, if you're familiar with that environment, that uh, breakwater has already been inundated several times and, and so is now taking up quite a lot of uh, council's money just to maintain it. So, so there are already impacts. We already have seen coastal erosion and receding of the coastline on the south coast. Uh, with storms that will only uh, 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 be exacerbated and and I mentioned fire before 
we mustn't just think about the impacts from the marine environment on the coast, but also we need to be thinking about what's happening in the hinterland. All these factors need to go into our local planning decision-making. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering is, you know, quite often we see, I mean, there is a a physical barrier, or not a physical barrier, there is a a physical difference between the the ocean and the land, um, and on the map there's an edge drawn, you know, that's where the land ends, this is where the ocean starts. But, of course, in reality it's, it's one big whole environment and it is there is the thinking going behind that whole environment or is it still very much a separate this is the ocean this is the land type thinking are are people looking at those combined effects sure Uh, if i take a longer term perspective yes uh definitely people have a much deeper deeper understanding about uh, those connections Uh, but there's also short-term politics that comes into play and and i guess a very good example in new south wales uh, had really quite good coastal planning and uh, had a new south wales coastal council and then really over the last quite recent last five years um that was uh the coastal council went uh was abolished uh the uh coastal plans climate change could not be discussed and so uh we went through a bit of a a dark period if you like and uh but now uh, there's quite um uh, an embracing of these issues again uh by the current new south wales government and um so they've made a commitment to re-establish the new south wales coastal council and to to look at coastal planning again uh and and to look at and we can discuss climate change again so there's hope and just the reason I mention this is it's very hard for local governments to be able to do the right thing if higher levels of government are not supporting them in their actions. Yeah, and I suppose that must be the struggle because in that time the science hasn't changed. That's right. Uh, the scientists That's are right. still doing the same work and That's coming right. to the same conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. So how... Because um, I suppose you, you, you're, you, in the planning sector you would operate on that interface quite a bit. How do, yes. you, how do you work with something like that when the government is coming down and saying, no, 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 and the scientists are saying, yes, 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 underneath? Well, the professionals get pretty, uh, pretty uh, sophisticated at uh, uh, maintaining uh, good policy outcomes through difficult times, if you like. A uh, few, few changes in language, a few changes in, uh, <laughs> in uh, sort of uh, approaches, uh, talk about risk management rather than climate change, talk about... And so uh, uh, my observation is that they're actually very skilled at doing that. Uh, and there's usually uh, on the local council, the elected councillors, it's not like all of them have you know, decided not to discuss these issues. They'll usually be you know, uh, you know, a group, a minority often, uh, that are that are uh, uh, still committed to understanding the science and, and embedding that. So I think, um, I think the, keeping those threads together, professionals are very good at that, so the staff are usually working very hard behind the scenes. And uh, then uh, um, sometimes you talk about windows of opportunity, suddenly there's a, a period of enlightenment and, and uh, they can get those uh, strategies back on the table and locked in. But core to your question really is how do we embed action on uh, climate change and and good coastal planning over the long term? And look, I still think that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, We've had over 25 national inquiries into these issues and uh, we still don't have a national coastal policy. The most recent one was on coast and climate change in 2009, chaired by Jenny George. And and, uh, as far as I can tell, none of the recommendations have been taken up. So... So um, 
The good thing that I find, though, and keeps me my my uh, interest, is that there's like a network of people across the country that uh, do work together, particularly at the local level. I was going to say, without a without a national um, uh, policy, would that make your job a whole lot harder? Surely, to have sure. to go below that and not be able to get your message translated out to everyone, and you've yes. got to go to the next level and go to each person yes. individual. Yes, makes it much harder, and whether it's uh, the practice that. I've been involved in, or if you look at the academic literature, all of all of the conclusions come to the same. Well, they all come to the same conclusion. Let me put it that way: that uh, all three levels of government need to be working together to affect change when you're dealing with these complex issues on the ground. Uh, so, uh, our national government's not uh, interested in these issues right now, and uh, I think that's pretty well understood around coast and climate change. However, um, I think there's glimmers of hope. Uh, uh, Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, uh, climate change can now be discussed again and uh, Victorian government has announced uh, that they will be developing a new marine and coastal act which is terrific to bring those two elements together. Uh, Queensland's just announced with their new government although rather tenuous and political not quite sure how long they'll be there but at the <laughs> moment they're there, have announced they'll be developing a new coastal act and as I said in New South Wales they're restoring coastal planning again and in all three jurisdictions um, they've put climate change back on the agenda so there is hope there and I think that will really help local communities and local action it's very tough for the state governments though their high level of government that there's no national support for what they're doing and so but you know there's a groundswell coming in my view from the bottom up and so I guess we need to work with that as much as we can I actually agree with that I think it's one of the the best ways to achieve action having a look at what's happening at a national level state level and local government level I I know in Yuriba Shire you know the work they're doing with the oyster growers there to have them actually okaying development applications so that they can make sure that if a house is built with a septic system it won't be polluting the river or you know is is really innovative and really progressive and i know some of my researchers from france came over to find out because they don't do that in france and they wanted to be as good as (laughs) narama yeah so the local governments have a really good opportunity to play a strong role yeah they do and i mean just in my last two weeks i've gave a talk in Malakuta, it's a town that uh, is very dear to me and and that was packed out. There's real genuine community interest mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we'll be down at uh, Marimula, in fact, it's, yeah. uh, this coming weekend. I was at Sunshine Coast Council last Thursday night, this week, up in Queensland. It was in Victoria a couple of weeks ago. So there's a lot of conversations happening and they're drawing very much on the science, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, the Climate Council is helping with that, with uh, science communication. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose the the communities themselves uh, would be the ones that are seeing the impact, and I think that's fantastic to hear that people are realising the importance of what's going on and, and, and seeing... I assume they must be seeing things themselves, which is prompting well, them are. to come along to things like this. They are, and they are, in fact, right around Australia, although mm. we're talking about the south coast, but on the other south coast, in southwest WA, nine local governments have voluntarily chosen to work together now as in wow. partnership on climate change. So no-one's asked them to do it, no, they just say, 
we can see what's happening and we want to work together. Um, up in the north, in Arnhem Land, uh, the Dimaru uh, 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 Indigenous Community, Aboriginal Land Council there, have, fa- have developed a fantastic sea country plan and very much uh, incorporated climate change into their considerations. And I could keep going around. Yeah. This voluntary collaborations from the ground up, I, I think, Cathy, just relating to your comment, I think provide the really strong... Uh, a, st- a strong basis for solving some of these problems on the ground. Not yeah. forgetting we have to have an eye on mitigation all the time at the global yes. level. I yeah. mean, we're course. dealing with the consequences of this. Uh, but So that's got to be the first priority. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, I think my comment about higher levels of government, uh, I really wish that the national government uh, would support some of this... Uh, really positive local collaboration because they're doing it on nothing or a shoestring or spending six out of their 12 months reapplying for the next dollar mm. and um, some really good support for this practical action is to use their rhetoric would be a, would would go a long way yeah fantastic well i know you've recently put in uh together a report on uh, the southeast coastal adaptation we might come yes. closer to home in just a sure. moment because the southeast coast is home for yes. second home for many canberrans yes. but uh, we'll just have a short break before okay. we do and uh, let you collect your thoughts and uh, have some music this is uh well it's not sea cucumbers this is pickles from the jar uh, <laughs> by <laughs> courtney bennett let's have a little bit of music here on fuzzy logic The time is 12.22 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio. And today on Fuzzy, we are talking about our changing oceans. There's a big forum coming up down at the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre uh, next weekend, the 2nd and 3rd of May, happening in Club Sapphire Marimbula. I'll give you more details about that at the end of the show, but there are still tickets available. Um, so stick around to the end of the show or you can check out the details which will be coming up on our Facebook page too. If you haven't liked our Facebook page, you should. That's where you can hear all the updates about what's happening on Fuzzy and uh, make any comments and contributions while we're on air as well, if you do have any questions. Um, Today I'm really excited to have a couple of researchers in the studio we've we're talking earlier to Catherine Schmutter from the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU about ocean acidification and then uh, just before the break we started talking to Professor Barbara Norman uh, from the University of Canberra and uh, also Director of Canberra Urban and Regional Futures about some of her work looking at uh, urban and regional futures especially around the south coast and i mentioned before we went to the song that uh, you've just recently helped complete the uh, southeast coastal adaptation report which is a, a bit of a framework for the the southeast coast and what are, what are some of the things that are hopefully going to going to help promote action from that report catherine uh, not Catherine, Barbara. Sorry, Barbara. Thanks, Roderick. Uh, South East Coastal Adaptation Report was uh, funded by the NCAF, National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility. It involved three universities. It was led by uh, UC, University of Canberra, and supported by ANU and University of Wollongong. And we worked with uh, seven local councils from Wollongong right round to Lakes Entrance. So it tried to... Uh, it intentionally went across the border. So we looked at the southwest <laughs> corner of Australia rather yeah. than New South Wales... South Coast and and the Gippsland Coast in Victoria. Uh, We came up with seven uh, principles, if you like, uh, as a basis for uh, adapting to climate change in the South Coast. Uh, None of these are particularly new, but I think it's important that they came from the focus groups we ran, not from us as researchers and the decision makers. 
So the first was not surprising that we need a more integrated approach to coastal planning and marine planning uh, on the south coast. Uh, um, On the one hand, we've got scientists, and Cathy's been talking about that, understanding what's happening there. And then in another room, we've got the planners making decisions. In another room, we've got the elected councillors and somewhere else out there, the catchment managers, and I could go on, a whole whole (laughs) list of decision-makers. And somehow we need to bring them together around the table to to have this integrated approach. So so that was the first thing. It was frustrating a lot of the decision-makers that that wasn't happening sufficiently. And having an integrated regional coastal plan would be one way of doing that. Uh, the second was uh, uh, precautionary approach, precautionary principle. You know, we're never we're never going to know 100% of anything really, and so uh, so that, that's that's not a reason not to be uh, taking action. And and uh, as we know, economists uh, make decisions on sort of 60% of their and have a have a bet. Uh, Scientists get criticised if they don't know 100%. Mm. And, of course, nature of science is you don't know 100%. So, One, so. one of my favourite climate change cartoons is actually the guy standing up in what appears to be a climate change forum and goes, what if human-induced climate change isn't real? What if That's we right. just created a better world for That's right. no reason? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and the third one was around a risk management approach, and that came through the latest uh, reports from the IPCC as well. So engaging a conversation around risk, and particularly chief executives of local government, uh, um, is, seems to be a much more uh, productive conversation than just talking about climate change straight away, which can make people a bit frightened about the future. Um, then that just leads into having appropriate forums for discussion and supporting those those things. So this weekend's discussion is a great, great uh, example. But more funding to support these groups. It's something I keep saying all the time. I have no vested interest, but I just know how how um, productive and positive these forums are and, and need to be supported. And then that comes to capacity building. And uh, we've had a bit of bashing of science recently in this country. And, mm. and yet, you know, we need to be investing in understanding these issues. And, but not just in science. So at uh, University of Canberra, we run a, an intensive coastal management course. Uh, we're running it in July this year. And so uh, there I have science students and I make them go and sit in the chambers at Eurobadella local council and say, well, it's okay understanding the science guys, but this is where the decisions are made. Mm. And I make the planners go and walk out and and look at the mangroves with the science students and say, well, it's okay understanding the planning processes, but you need to know some basic science if you're going to be making decisions, uh, responsible ones. So is that course, just out of curiosity, is that course a mixture of the the scientists and the planners all coming together? Yes, and and they really enjoy it. We get very positive feedback about yeah. this course so that's a winter term unit that you see coming up so if anyone's interested please contact me <laughs> and i'll be running it and a great group of people and uh, the, the students have a very good time as well uh, and then finally the thing that we're always pretty sloppy about this monitoring and evaluation and review and learning by doing yeah. you know and so we need to be investing at that end too um, in terms of just just uh, in just very quickly we haven't really talked about the social considerations and governance implications. And, and so we have an ageing population on the coast. We have a high uh, degree of social security dependency on the coast. And so the, we have quite a, you know, vulnerable populations in, in social economic uh, considerations. And so the impacts of climate change may well hit those communities the hardest uh, because they have the least means to be able to move, to adapt, 
to mm. changing circumstances. So we must be thinking about those those connections. That's probably for a whole other show. <laughs> but, uh, Definitely. And, and governance, as I said, uh, supportive uh, institutional arrangements to support uh, collaboration. If there's goodwill and there's good science, people want to work together, we should be embracing that. And with very little funds, I think uh, we can, we can uh, make a really big difference. So, but coming back to your cartoon, uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, just uh, whether you believe in climate change or not, and I hope uh, you do accept the science, belief's the wrong word, mm. accept the science, the, uh, the things that one we will do, and we're doing at Canberra, as I chair the ACT Climate Change Council, investing in renewable energy, investing in public transport, smart infrastructure, green buildings, and, uh, and uh, biodiversity, and... and you know, as that cartoon said, why wouldn't we be doing this anyway? Mm. So, uh, that's right. I think that's a fantastic point to finish up on there. Um, if you do want to know more about uh, either Barbara or Kathy's uh, topics, head down to the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Forum. It's happening this Saturday and Sunday, uh, the second and third of May, down at Club Sapphire Marimbula. As well as uh, Barbara and Cathy, there's also um, speakers from other institutions around Australia um, and all kind of focusing on uh, climate change and other changes around the coast and uh, beach, beach areas. Um, so it'll be a fantastic forum. For more details, head to uh, sapphirecoastdiscovery.com.au where you can still sign up. There are still registration spots available. Uh, so check it out and I'll post the link on our Facebook page too. But it's a, a fantastic forum not only the six speakers but there are also outdoor activities on the Saturday afternoon uh, to allow participants to explore the Sapphire Coast there's some fantastic organised uh, activities outside and looking at the science behind it all too and there's a lovely uh, dinner on the Saturday night as well which is a great opportunity to uh, meet some uh, like-minded people and uh, to a scientist's ear I'm sure too and ask them some more questions about their work um, so again, for more details on that, head to uh, sapphirecoastdiscovery.com.au or you can head to the link on our Facebook page. Uh, but that just about wraps it up. Thank you very much, Barbara, for coming in this morning and uh, sharing thanks, some of your work. And uh, thanks to you too, Cathy. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's been a yeah. really interesting show. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and uh, I think both of your work ties in so nicely together in terms of uh, what's happening in our oceans, what's happening in the world, and how we can actually activate that change and make things happen. Thank you. Thanks for bringing us together, because yeah. I think we'll have a good conversation <laughs> at the coast, Cathy. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Right, so thanks for joining me in the studio, Joe. Always a pleasure to talk to you, bro. Uh, best of luck for your trip to Africa, mate. Thank and, you. Uh, we'll welcome you back afterwards and have a chat about it for sure. I look forward to it. Awesome. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. My name's Broderick Matthews. It's been a pleasure to have you with us this Sunday right here on Fuzzy Logic.